The Extremist Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie, and it's a great pleasure to be joined today by Professor Joy Hendry, who is one of the UK's most respected voices on the subject of anthropology and the author of, amongst many other things, Science and Sustainability, Learning from Indigenous Wisdom. Hello, Tom. Yes, I'm here. (laughs) It's one of the subjects that's close to my heart. Well, I'm very glad that you're here to talk to us about the subject, Joy, because it is one I think that is especially timely, uh, given current interest in the environment uh, and in Indigenous cultures generally. Um, So I'm really looking forward to discussing this uh, multifaceted topic with you. Um, So the first question I would like to ask is, um, the subject of Indigenous wisdom is one which is emerging more fully into public discourse as the issue of environmental awareness continues to predominate in political debate. How did you first come to be involved in this hugely multifaceted area of research? Um, Yes, you're quite right. It has suddenly, not suddenly, but it is gradually becoming more important as people realise that the knowledge that Indigenous people have is valuable. Um, I guess it was when I first went to Canada... A long, long time ago, um, in the days when young people could say, I would like to go to Canada, and you paid £50 and you got a work visa, <laughs> which was a long time ago. And it was, in the, it, it was 1967, and there was an expo in Montreal. And a thing that uh, influenced me and was absolutely stunning was the pavilion that had been built by the native Canadians, who now are known as the First Nations of Canada. And they uh, managed to draw in people to see how they used to live, how the settlers who arrived in Canada um, were given local knowledge by those people who lived there, how they were helped. And um, I guess I was influenced by that. And it sat in the back of my mind while I was doing other things and then gradually came to the fore. And um, when I went back to Canada to do research, I met quite by chance I met the man who'd set up that pavilion who'd been in charge of setting it up and so revitalized my interest in what they were doing because they had things I mean I don't know if 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 ordinary people in this country realize that things we now use every day like um or strawberries the big lovely big strawberries that we grow here they came from there that that was one of the things that was introduced avocados potatoes tomatoes you know, our everyday food, a lot of it came from North America and it came because the native people introduced the settlers and, the, well, the, 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 in the case of Canada, it was often the voyageurs, the French who went there and travelled around and traded in furs and things to knowledge that they had that enabled them to live there and then um, bring back things to Europe, 
with without really giving credit necessarily to the people who who introduced them to the ideas. Now you've spoken in the past uh, not just <coughs> of your involvement with the 1967 Expo in Montreal, but also in 2003 you stayed um, at the Six Nation Reserve in Brantford. How do these experiences come to inform your view on the subject of Indigenous peoples and the way that they've been represented? Well, the, uh, the, I mentioned that I met the man who'd set up the native pavilion in the expo. He was married to um, the chief at the time in the six, in, on the Six Nations Reserve in Brantford, Ontario, and he was actually the museum curator at that Woodland Cultural Centre where I was working. So uh, through them, and I stayed with the mother of his wife and her family, uh, and she had six children, each of whom was working in um, some way or another that helped me to learn about the indigenous knowledge and, and the value of it. And I, um, one of the things that I did while I was there that time, I was looking at how <coughs> indigenous people were reclaiming their representation of themselves. So a lot of museums until that time would present Native Americans and Native people around the world as if they'd died out. So they would put stuff they were displaying and describe it in the past tense. So the Mohawks did this, used to do that, you know, as if they weren't there anymore. So one of the things that they were involved in when I was doing that research was re-presenting um, themselves as living people who were still, and a lot of what they were doing was art, who were still making art and that would be on display. So I wasn't thinking about science so much then until um, one or two things happened. So, for example, I learned about the um, the way that people grow used to grow plants. There's, there's a thing known as the Three Sisters, which is a way of growing growing corn and beans and squash together. And each of them um, uh, helps the other. So the corn grows up and makes a big post. The beans grows beans grow up around the big post that the corn is growing on, and the puts nitrogen back in the soil as they grow the beans and the squash which makes great big leaves um, keeps the moisture in the soil protects the soil from predators and and actually they all fertilize each other and they don't need to be fertilized they don't need to be treated with um, pesticides and they grow very substantial crops and that's what they used to do all over native north america and down and down into south america as well certainly Mexico and along came um, Westerners and um, said oh no that's not the way to do it you know, we'll have a big field of corn here we'll have a big field of squash there we'll have beans growing over here and separated them out and the monocultures that they introduced um, are, sub are subject to the, the devastation of, of pests and um, weather and other things and so they then, then they need to introduce pesticides and um, uh, things that are destroying the earth that was being used in a sustainable way by those people. So that's one of the things I learned at that time that put my interest over into the, the science. And another thing that happened when I was there that time was that there was a, there was a, an architect who was building buildings and which he liked to think displayed his native origins and so he built a school which was very um, uh, impressive to me because he'd done things like he'd built bricks of different colours so that the children would see the different colours of the earth that their school was built on. 
he put post he put um, pipes down in six feet under because in the winter when it's very cold the earth on the top becomes uh, frozen whereas six feet down it's always warm so the pipes would go down and bring water back up and contribute to the heating of the building um, and he also put a wonderful north-south glass uh, roof on the library and so when the sun was out you could see on the library wall the time of day and the time of year if you if you'd cal they, they hadn't calibrated it but had they calibrated it they could have measured things like that so he was using knowledge that had come he said you know through generations to inform his his people oh and there was one more thing he did which which was nice which was he put great big steel girders at the front of the school at an angle so when it rained the water would come down the girders and jump about little drops of water would jump about and he said and children can learn the qualities of the water and he said i'm using modern technology but introducing the children to ideas that i so that things like that began to intrigue me and i and i have a science degree myself and so when i came back and saw thought about all the things i'd um been looking at on that particular project, I began to think more about indigenous science. In the past, you've spoken of the need to gather examples of work that uses indigenous knowledge for its own value and in its own terms, without necessarily checking that it meets criteria presently understood in Western mainstream science. How far does scientific practice have to evolve in order to demonstrate a gradually increasing global understanding of the intrinsic value of indigenous knowledge for mainstream concerns? Mm, that's. I think you've um, <laughs> you, you're trying to send me down a path which I wouldn't go down <clears throat> because I don't think I think science. If you're thinking of what do you mean by science? I mean, what are you thinking of when you use the word science? Well, that in itself is an interesting it question. It is. It's an interesting question, and I think what we tend what I might anticipate what you were thinking is something which came out of the Enlightenment. Mm. And that's the problem, because we think that we were enlightened, um, certainly in Scotland and, and Europe, and learned about science from what happened at that time, whereas, of course, people were thinking scientifically in the Middle East. We got a lot of our ideas from the Middle East, from Babylon, from the, the maths and different parts of the world. And the Chinese were doing all sorts of things which were um, uh, recognised scientifically uh, long before the Enlightenment and I think that the, what we what we did was we began to think we've got something special that we've got to take around the world and introduce people to without remembering that people around the world had developed their own scientific systems and so let's take China as, as one example because lots of people know about things like Qigong and Tai Chi and the way that the Chinese think about energy flows around the body that's something which doesn't come into our system of medical science and so we don't understand it so we tend to think that it's it's not <laughs> valid whereas it's it's perfectly valid from a Chinese perspective and actually Chinese doctors some Chinese doctors do both they practice Western medicine and Chinese as well and they have to have multiple ways of thinking in order to do that to do to make, take advantage of both systems so I don't think our way of thinking about science is ever going to evolve to include everything we just have to be more open and realize that our system of science is just one and and the trouble the problem is that it's become known as mainstream science 
And so we are still imposing or trying to impose it on other parts of the world. Um, indigenous people do all the things that scientists do to um, justify what they do with science. So they make long-term observations, they test things, they try things, they experiment, and they record things. But the problem is that they quite often used to record them for thousands of years in stories and in art and in pictures and things that weren't recognised by outsiders when they arrived in their lands. So I think what scientists need to do is be more open to understanding other ways of thinking, which is where the anthropologist comes in as a helpful person. To yeah. Yes, because I think you mentioned, didn't you, a while ago that... Um, Anthropology was the most humanistic of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities. Yes, it's a quotation from Alfred Kroeber, actually, who was one of our, our founding fathers. And, yeah, that's right. I mean, the thing is that anthropologists live with people for so long that they know that they have different ways of thinking. And I went to a wonderful talk once, um, actually just quite near Oxford, and what had happened was some uh, there's um, uh, a group of primatologists who had brought people that they'd worked with in South America to, there's a, there's a what, how do you describe it? There's a kind of piece of South America that's been created. It's a bit like the Eden Project, where they've created a, a, an environment from a different part of the world. And they brought these people from, I think it was um, Colombia anyway, people who lived in the rainforest in South America. And they were walking around this recreated rainforest and talking about the plants. And it was really hard to understand what they were talking about because it was it, they were talking in not only a different language but a different way of thinking about plants and and dealing with them. There was a there was a very sad article in an anthropological journal recently, <clears throat> which actually brought tears to my eyes because the woman had been working it was with people who grow sago in Papua New Guinea, I think it was, and. Um, the way that they used to do it was the mothers would take the children out and they would, the children would be involved in growing all, all stages of growing sago and they would learn about the growing of, of the sago, which is the basic part of their diet, through dealing with it and through actually being with the sago. And, and, but apparently people have, have stopped valuing that way of learning. And it was very sad because it was, it was so beautiful that it was a way that you'd have your education and learn about the thing that was basic to your life by just simply doing it with your children. You know, we always, we're always talking about how people need to be educated, but educated in what? You know, if you're educating kids in a society where they grow sago, then that was, seemed such a wonderful way to do it. How much effort do you think is being expended in scholarly circles to identify and record projects that make indigenous knowledge part of mainstream national education systems across the world? Well, not a huge amount, but it is happening in different places. And, um, I mean, for example, in Australia, which is one of the countries where people have treated their Aboriginal um, occupant, you know, their Aboriginal neighbours really badly, it's also a place where there are schools that are bringing... Um, <clears throat> indigenous knowledge into the school system and there's a wonderful exchange between a school in Melbourne I think it's the Methodist school in Melbourne and a school up in North West um, which is an Aboriginal school and they send children to visit each other and so they're learning about different forms of education and there's, they made a little film about a boy who didn't like the school which was introducing things that came 
from Europe, you know, in, into the Australian system. So, and he would, and he took the filmmaker out into the the bush, and led them around and explained to them things he'd learned from his family about you know how things grow and how things, how to live out in the country, and, and that was a really nice nice little film because he then came, you know, children went from the school in Melbourne to visit his his area as well. So there are, and there are also people putting things out on social media uh, about schools around the world and how they're introducing people. But it's, um, I'm not sure how widespread it is. And certainly in New Zealand, if you're in, um, if you're training to be in any of the medical professions, you do have to spend quite a lot of time looking at Maori ideas. Because there was a Maori, uh, there is a Maori man, he's still alive, he's not, he was, became the vice chancellor of Massey University. And he was a, a qualified doctor and a qualified psychiatrist. And he wrote um, a wonderful system of how you would get maximum health. And it's based on the, well, he, do, he did a house first, and then he did it based on the Southern Cross, which is six stars. So you need physical health, you need mental health, but to get to have those to be really good, you also need cultural health. Um, there are six of them. <laughs> Can't remember what they, what they all were, but autonomy was one of them, and having being part of a community and a family. I think those were the six aspects of it. And in order to be healthy, it's no good just having physical health if you haven't got those other things around you to support you. You know that interests me because I think of Joan Lindsay's novel uh, *Picnic at Hanging Rock*, um, which depicts quite interestingly that um, collision between. Aboriginal mysticism and spirituality and uh, a very rigid Western way of looking at society. Uh, how long do you think it will be before um, the sort of collision between scientific models of thought will undergo that kind of study? I know. I don't know. I, I, I'm not really very good at predicting what's going to happen, but I do, I do see positive um, things happening. So, you know, I... I do, and I have a son who's filming things like that that are happening and, and travels a lot in different parts of the world. And they've been, he and his partner have been in um, Mexico and they've, under Belize, and they've found a lot of, um, they've been looking for them, so I don't know how widespread they are or how influential they are in the wider world, but they've been looking for people who are revitalizing things like Mayan knowledge. And so they were in the Mayan food forest and there are still people who are using the whole forest to grow all the food they need, all the herbs and medicines they need. And um, there are people in other parts of Mexico who are revitalizing Mexican indigenous knowledge for <coughs> what the, the, the wider general public. Uh, I also do know um, a couple of people who are going around filming different sorts of educational systems where they're introducing. But but when it'll be more widespread, it's hard to tell. Well, it's often said that indigenous wisdom has a huge part to play in informing science when it comes to health and the environment. Medicinal plants, for instance, which have been used for therapeutic purposes by indigenous peoples, but which are only now coming to the attention of Western scholarly modes of inquiry. How are these subjects being addressed and investigated by scientists and medical researchers now? Yeah, actually, <clears throat> there's a lot more been going on, which is quite despicable. So pharmaceutical companies have been going out and finding out 
about indigenous plants, knowledge that indigenous people have, and um, using it without giving them either credit or you know economic benefits, and then coming back and making things out of them that they then you know charge the rest of us. <laughs> Vast sums for it's it's a bit of um, a scandal. So there are places I went to Vanuatu, for example, when I was doing this research on indigenous science and they are very much aware of what's been stolen from them by pharmaceutical companies and so they're now being much more careful. In Australia I went to a place where um, they're, they're in, they're, all their students, Aboriginal students in particular, but other students are welcome to join in, are learning about the knowledge that they have, um, but they, they're also taught to be careful about it because they don't want other people finding out. So, so it, it's sad in a way because I met a young man who is training to be a, a medical um, practitioner amongst his own Aboriginal people. And he talks about eucalyptus, all the values of eucalyptus. Well, we all know about eucalyptus. You know, you can have menthol and eucalyptus for a, um, an inhalation if you've got a stuffed up nose. We, we don't have colds, he said. We, we use the eucalyptus, we cure our colds. It's not something that, you know, bothers us. And then um, in other parts of the world, there are <coughs> people who treat malaria. They know how to treat the malaria that bothers us so much when we go traveling there. Um, so I, it's a difficult position. And people like the body shop woman, Anita Roddick, she went around and she's found all sorts of things which are really good for the skin and puts them into her products. And I think she does give people more credit for what she's learned with them. So. You asked about scholarship, and, and I, it's difficult to predict what's going to happen. I can give you examples of different parts of the world where people are taking these things into account. Um, but then, at the same time, well, for example, in Auckland University, <coughs> there were a couple of people I met, one earth scientist and one um, engineer, and they were writing for the general public and for anyone who would read it, um, about something which Maori's called tanifa, which is um, uh, literally translated as a demon. And basically it's to do with the land. So where there's a tanifa, you do not build anything. And because it's likely... And there was a road which was built where they'd already been warned there were tanifa, and it's sinking, it's subsiding. Uh, there's um, um, uh, a whole series of... Uh, areas around Christchurch where people when they were developing Christchurch were advised by the local Maori population not to build they were the ones that were damaged during that terrible earthquake because the Maori know which areas are safe and not safe and these these two people in the university <coughs> who have university positions so they've done really well and they're involved in research I, I was interviewing one of them and he said <coughs> we had a really good um, head of department who was listening to us now we've got a new one, English man apparently he was, who doesn't want to know. He doesn't think that we have anything of value to tell him. So, you know, it very much depends on individual situations, I think, and and people people who are willing to, you know, take into account what's going on around them. Well, I think that leads us into our next question, which is, in what ways do you feel that Indigenous knowledge is being communicated using uh, modern means of information dissemination, such as social <coughs> media, for instance. How crucial a part does the internet have to play in imparting knowledge which might be ancient in nature, especially if it's previously been conveyed through non-written traditions? Yeah. 
Well, I've I've seen a lot of um, partly through my son who's watching it and put, puts me on to these things. A lot of young indigenous people who are um, putting out not only knowledge about their science, or actually not much about their science, but more about their dancing, the way that they do things, that the way they have fun, and they're getting together. And on, for example, TikTok is where they will do their dancing. But they get together and do things like saving um, the valuable seeds that might otherwise have been forgotten. And um, I think the internet's really important and probably really going to do a lot of good. Uh, but it's it's man it's getting people to follow you, isn't it? That's the that's the problem. They're getting together. So indigenous people who in the previous generation, in my generation, were put down and were sent to those horrible um, boarding schools where they were supposed to be being turned into Westerners, um, then their children are beginning have begun to realise that that's not a a good way to proceed, and their children, who are the ones who are now using the social media and the internet are getting together and being able to value the knowledge and, and they're, fortunately there are still enough elders around who can help them so I think I think it is it is really valuable for bringing that kind of um, knowledge out into the wider world it's just at the moment there's probably uh, a lack of followers who would have an influence in the scientific world as we think of it as as um, where where it needs to go, but there are schools. I mean, th there are people who are in, in introducing their children in the schools where they're learning outside knowledge as well that's come from Europe to value their own indigenous knowledge. So the school I mentioned that was built by the Mohawk architect, it, actually they use Mohawk as a medium there, so they're learning Mohawk language. And I met a man who is probably in his sixties who said when he was at school, before that school was built, but it was being conceived of, he had a teacher who said to them one day, and this, this man found school rather boring, who said to them one day, um, have you thought about what the local town that you live in um, means to you? What's the name, what the name means, what the history is? And they hadn't, because they hadn't learned that at school. They were learning all sorts of stuff coming in from Europe. And that day, that man took an interest in school and set about finding out from his elders and from people around. And he became uh, one of the people who worked in the Woodland Cultural Centre. He looked after the resources. That's how I, you know, how, how I heard the story. So the, the schools like that, that now value local knowledge, are doing a huge amount for, um, for disseminating it, at least to, to, to the people who are feeling proud about their, their own background, whereas two generations ago they would be being made to feel bad about their indigenous background. And one final, I suppose quite far-reaching question, um, if we are to consider epistemology in its traditional sense of inquiring into the nature and scope of human knowledge, how do you feel we must rethink the scientific method in order to more fully engage with indigenous wisdom? Yes, well, there's 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 a man called Greg Cajete, a, a Native American from Pueblo Indians, Tewap man, who's written a whole book called Native Science, in which he argues that there are three major parts to uh, um, that mainstream scientists need to think about. One, the first is that 
we think, or we have been thinking, I mean, I think gradually we're realising it's not possible now, that if we learn enough science, we'll be able to solve all problems, we'll be able to, to do anything. And, and when we realise we can't do that, because we're actually ruining the world we live in, and which I think is coming through, that'll be one big step in the right direction. Um, <clears throat> another is that he talks about the fact that um, mainstream scientists ignore the spirituality in the way they talk about science. And um, I think people are, some scientists are beginning to realise the value of uh, knowledge that's come through thinking about the world in a spiritual way, as well as uh, the way that they tended to separate from the spiritual. And um, actually, there's um, one of the people that he introduces in his book is uh, um, a man, a Blackfoot man, with, whose first language is Blackfoot. And he uh, argues that he studied quantum physics. And probably, you know, quantum physics has, quantum physicists have a problem explaining that waves and particles are apparently incompatible with each other. He said, if you think about, the trouble is, he said, in in English, the English language, when you're discussing that, and probably all European languages, you're talking in such a way that these things take on a meaning which is incompatible. If you were talking in Blackfoot, you wouldn't, you don't have to pin everything down to nouns. Mm. Um, and the third thing that Greg Kete uh, criticised mainstream scientists for was leaving themselves out of the equation, so as acting as if they could be outside the whole way of thinking, which is clearly wrong because, we, as we know now, we're, we mainstream scientists and everybody else are interfering. I mean, the Anthropocene hadn't been invented when he wrote um, what he wrote, but that's, that's one thing we need to think about. So basically, I think what indigenous scientists are coming up with are ideas about ways in which people can um, have uh, ways of... Th 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 there's various ways of expressing it, like dual science or ways of thinking. Thinking two ways is one of the ways that they use in Canada. <clears throat> and a possible example to give you, which is um, in one part of Indigenous or Aboriginal Australia, there's some people called the Yolnu. And um, they were lucky in a way because they were in two ways, because the... Um, Methodist minister who went to bring them Christianity also found their uh, spiritual ideas interesting too. So they still, to this day, have a combination of inside and outside ideas. And the second thing was that a mathematician who teaches in Darwin University decided to learn their language. And he um, learnt Yolnu and discovered that in order to teach maths to the children in the Yolnu school, it was much better to start with the all new knowledge and move out into learning the maths that the Australian government wants everybody to learn, which came from, well, not actually Europe, but <laughs> from the Middle East. But anyway, that, that kind of maths that we all learn. So he uh, got involved and the children learn, before they ever go to school, they learn from their families around them ways of thinking about geometry because they know who lives where and what directions things happen and about the earth around them. They learn about relationships and who's related to who. And those kind that knowledge comes into the way they learn maths really successfully. So they do really well, those children, through thinking in their own language and then in bringing in the outside. So it's just one small example of how 
people uh, have suggested, indigenous scientists and some scientists who are working with indigenous uh, scientists, of being able to incorporate different ways of thinking into um, uh, a way that brings both, both values both and allows both to... And, and, and the example I gave you earlier on of Chinese medicine is one too, because the Chinese way of thinking about the body and the outside way of thinking about the body, if you can be adaptable and combine them and involve multiple ways, because it's not just always just two, but involve different ways of thinking, I think that's the way forward. And that's the way forward that, that your um, indigenous scientists, that are my indigenous scientists that I'm telling you about, the indigenous scientists that I met, would, would argue that, that would probably work in the long run. Well, Joy, thank you very much for taking the time to speak about such a complex and important subject. Um, I think with the environment being more on people's minds now than perhaps ever before, uh, it's uh, such a, an important subject to, to deal with and one which I feel is uh, likely to be studied and discussed for so many years to come. So thank you very much for um, opening our eyes to such a, a vitally uh, crucial subject. Well, thank you for inviting me to talk about it. It's a subject, as I said, close to my heart. <coughs> Joy's recent book, An Affair with a Village, is available to buy from all good independent retailers and online booksellers worldwide. Thank you very much for joining us today. I hope that you'll tune in again soon. If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.